I wonder uh, if you, or how you react when somebody treats you unfairly, or somebody does uh, treats you unjustly, or you feel somebody's wrong to you. Uh, it could be uh, these days on a Zoom meeting at work, or it could be in a, in a face-to-face meeting, or it could be a neighbor. But somebody's upset you. Uh, maybe they've taken credit for something that you did. Maybe they've scapegoated you and let you take the blame when actually it was partly their fault. Uh, and, and the next day they come, perhaps, and they want your help with something. What do you say to them? How do you react? Or sometimes, I don't know if you, uh, like, like me, have been a subject of those at work emails occasionally where you've done something and you thought it was okay, but some, somebody else profoundly disagrees, thinks you're an idiot, thinks I'm an idiot. So they sent me an email doesn't say Christian idiot, but more or less says that. And they CC my colleagues, and they CC my manager, right? Just to make it clear to everybody that Chris is an idiot, yeah? What do you do when, that, when you see that person again? Or they come and see you and they say, hey, you can give me a hand with this. What do you do? You could say, get lost, right? Or you could just never say anything. and say, just, just never say anything. Let's pretend it never happened. Um, I suggest both reactions are wrong. Fight and flight are both wrong reactions, actually. And today we're going to look at some of the ideas in the Bible of how to deal with people when we feel wronged, when somebody's done something to us or allowed us to take the blame. And in particular, we'll look at what David did. David is one of the most important uh, characters in Scripture. We've done him on the tour a few weeks ago, so we're we're spending a a few weeks in David at the moment, uh, mainly in 1 and 2 Samuel. He's important because not only did he achieve Israel's greatest time of prosperity, they had prosperity, they had peace, their enemies were subdued, they were at an all-time high with King David. Not only that, that's not the only reason, but Jesus is often called after David. A messianic title for Jesus is son of David. You've probably seen that at the very first line of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says, this is the story of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. The first thing we hear in the New Testament, this is the son of David. People used to call Jesus the son of David. There were two blind men chasing after him and they said, uh, have mercy on us, son of David they call him. And on uh, Palm Sunday, I'm sure you know that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, with the crowds giving him adulation, they pulled down branches from the trees, threw them in the road and said, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David, they said. And uh, even um, uh, we, we, we refer as well to the place of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem, as, the, as the David's city, the city of David. You will know the carol, once in royal David's city stood a lowly cattle shed. David is woven throughout the New Testament and throughout our understanding as a messianic title, a title for Jesus. And they used it because people wanted the good times that David brought them. They wanted them back, the good old days. Bring us back to David and the, and the peace and the prosperity and all the nations respecting us. Son of David, they called Jesus. So today, we're not talking about the son of David, but we're talking about David himself in this series. Now, David will do things wrong, big time, and we'll hear about those in the future. But right now, right now, he's doing everything right. Pretty much he's doing everything right. He's, uh, he was a shepherd boy, as I'm sure you remember. 
then uh, Samuel finds him and anoints him as a, as a future king. And then as a shepherd boy still, he takes on this giant Goliath and defeats him. And he, he becomes a leader, a general in the army. And he's very successful. For, for this, Saul is the king. And for King Saul, David goes out and defeats the enemies of Israel. And people love him. David is really popular. We love David, they say. We want David. Give us David. We want David, they say. But then Saul, the king, starts getting jealous because they're not saying we want Saul. Nobody's saying that. They're saying we want David. Give us David. Saul gets jealous and there's a strong theme of jealousy and envy. And last week, Jonathan talked about that and how actually a very contemporary theme today is jealousy and envy. Very poignantly. If you didn't uh, hear that, go back and listen to that from last Sunday. In fact, Saul is so jealous so jealous of David that he starts to hound him. He leaves the enemies of Israel on his borders. We'll see that in the first verse of today's reading. He says, I'm just going to get this David and get rid of him. He becomes obsessed. And David runs away because he's afraid of of Saul. David runs away with 400 ragtag men. We're told they are men who are discontented, in debt, and distressed discontented, in debt and distressed. He gathers a group of people around him, 400 men, and they run off into the deserts and hiding places uh, around uh, Jerusalem, about 30 miles from Jerusalem, until one day, this is what happens. And if we can have the reading up, 1 Samuel 24. So, Saul has been pursuing the Philistines, right, on the borders of Israel. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David's in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds. Along the way, along the way a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself, use it as a toilet. David and his men were in the far back of that cave. The men said to David, This is the day the Lord spoke of you, when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And so with these words, David sharply rebuked his men, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe. But I did not kill you. See, there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. But you are hunting me down to take my life. 
May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrong you've done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers comes evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my case and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And Saul wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I have treated you badly. Let's pray as we come to this reading. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. It penetrates the dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts of our heart. And so today, Lord, may this ancient word, Lord, that speaks of a time a thousand years before Jesus, Lord, make this word relevant to our hearts today. May it judge the attitudes of our heart. May it show us something new of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Jealousy, rage, obsession. Saul is obsessed with David. Takes 3,000 men away from the, front, from the fighting with the Philistines to, just to catch David and his 400. David, uh, then he enters a cave to use, to use it as a toilet, the exact cave where David and his men are hiding. What a marvelous opportunity to kill Saul. God's given, say, David's men. He's egged on by his men, isn't he? Go and do it. Kill him. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I'll give your enemy into your hand. Look, he's there. Vulnerable. Do it. Do it. David creeps up to strike the final blow, but just as he's about to, his conscience troubles him. Thinks this isn't right. Verse 5 to 7. Immediately he felt guilty. He said to his men, God forbid that I should have done this to my master, God's anointed that I should so much as raise a finger against him. David decides that only God can decide, can determine what happens to Saul. But then David does something else. He doesn't just keep quiet and not do anything. As Saul goes off down the track, David emerges from the cave. Risky thing to do, right? And he calls out, says, Saul, see, I could have killed you. I could have killed, why are you chasing me? Why are you doing this? I could have taken you, but I didn't. And it has a profound effect on Saul. When David finished saying this, Saul wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. I would suggest to you that David's response was counterintuitive and countercultural. Counterintuitive and countercultural. He could easily have killed him. That was the culture at the time. Kill and be killed. Kill and be killed. The teachings of the New Testament, we have to wait a thousand years for Jesus to come. At this time, it's kill your enemy. In a thousand years' time, Jesus will say, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but now I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. But that's later. Jesus will say, love your neighbor as yourself. That's all to come. Right now, we're not in that law. We're in the law of Exodus that says an eye for an eye, a hand for a hand, a tooth for a tooth, a foot for a foot, a life for a life. Kill and be killed, one for one. That's the culture of the day. But interestingly, there are two things that David, two actions that David doesn't take. He doesn't fight Saul, he doesn't kill him, 
but nor does he remain silent in the cave. He doesn't fight and he doesn't take flight. He chooses a third way. He chooses a third way. I'm not going to fight you, but nor will I run away silently into another cave and another desert. I'm choosing a third way. I will confront you in my own way. So I suggest that finding this third way in conflicts, in arguments, finding this third way is the way that Christ will speak of in a thousand years' time when he comes. But here is David finding it himself a prototype of Jesus, piloting the way of Jesus before Jesus. The third way is always the hardest way um, let, let's talk about it a little, a little more. The third, this third way is always the hardest way. This non-confrontational, confrontational, this peaceful uh, protest is always the hardest way. But it's been used by Christians throughout the generations, throughout the millennia. It's been used by Christians uh, in the form of peaceful protest, active peaceful protest. There are many examples, and I hope we get to talk, we'll talk about more when we come to the New Testament on the tour in September. But here's one example, one example of somebody who chose the third way. Okay, this man was called, he's called Gordon Wilson, and uh, he's an, a fellow, in, lived in, in Northern Ireland, and if you're over about 35 years old, I think everybody is today, but I'm not, not maybe not everybody, then, uh, then, you've, then you've probably heard of him. But even if you're not over 35 years old, you will be accustomed to the situation in Northern Ireland. Uh, the situation, particularly in the 70s and the 80s that we had there, um, every time one side did something, the other side had to do something else, whoever it was. Every time, as uh, Philip Yancey says in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, to every atrocity, there had to be an equal and opposite atrocity. When there was a bomb here, there had to be a bomb there. That's what we got used to, wasn't it? It was unsolvable. It was intractable. It was a situation which I remember thinking, this can never end. It can never end. But then, on the 8th of November, 1987, there was an especially awful event in the town of Enniskillen in Northern Ireland. There was a bomb blast. Twelve people were killed and 63 were injured in an IRA bomb blast in 1987 in Enniskillen. Gordon Wilson, who was a Methodist, and his daughter lie buried under, the, under many feet of concrete and rubble. And his daughter is in a much worse state than him. In an interview with the BBC, Gordon Wilson described with anguish his last conversation with his daughter and his feeling towards her killers. He said... She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me, and those were the last words I ever heard her say. But then, to the astonishment of listeners, Wilson went on. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a pet. She's dead. She's in heaven, and we shall meet again. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. Now, nobody remembers what the politicians, the Prime Minister, the Northern Ireland Secretary said after that event. 
Nobody remembers the pathetic reasons that the man who planted the bomb gave. But the words of this man resounded around the world for years and still do. In 25 years of bitterness, unforgiveness, and retaliation, no other words had such a powerful and emotional effect on the situation in Northern Ireland. But listen to this. Wilson went on, and he insisted, he demanded to meet the IRA. He demanded to meet the IRA. Not, sorry, to confront them, but to actively forgive them. And he said to them, I know you've lost loved ones just like me. Surely enough is enough. Enough blood has been spilled. I know you've lost loved ones just like me. Surely enough is enough. Enough blood has been spilled. Others followed Wilson. There are others such as the Mothers for Justice who equally refused to take revenge but refused to be silent. They refused to retaliate but they refused to say nothing. And so uh, a few years later, the Good Friday Agreement was reached, wasn't it, in 1998? So this third way, not fight, not flight, but peaceful confrontation, can really break a cycle of bitterness. This third way can break a cycle of violence. Let's join these stories up then. 1000 BC, we've got David, and 2080, a man in Northern Ireland. Teaching on forgiveness in between, we find Jesus at 0 AD. So here's David in a cave, 1000 BC, refuses to respond to violence with violence. I will not respond with violence. But he also refuses to sit quietly and do nothing. He confronts his aggressor. Gordon Wilson refuses to perpetuate the cycle of violence, refuses to respond with violence. But he also refuses to sit quietly and say nothing. He confronts his aggressor. And so what about us? What about us today? Thank God we are very unlikely ourselves to be in a terrorist situation. Thank God for that. But I suggest we are often in situations where we feel wronged, where we feel somebody has treated us unjustly. Often we're confronted by situations, <coughs> excuse me, and people who we feel have wronged us, have treated us badly. Could be at work, could be that email situation, could be a meeting, could be just, you know, you see your neighbor's bin in the middle of the road and you think, well, they didn't help me with my bin. Whatever it is, we feel that somebody didn't help us and we feel, well, why should I do something for them? Especially when I can fight back. That's my reaction as well. But fight and flight are not the only two choices. There's always, always in conflict a third way. We just have to find it. It's it's hard to find and it's hard to do. It's counterintuitive. It's not the obvious thing to do. Um, For me, when I'm in those situations, when that guy sent me that email, I often get angry about it and want to fight back. Or you just sneak into a corner and lick your wounds and seethe. That's my instinct, instinctive reaction. But I'm learning to mistrust my instinctive reactions sometimes and to look for a third way, which for me is counterintuitive as well. It's not obvious. 
And that way that David starts will become the way of forgiveness that Jesus tells us about. And 2,000 years after that, a man in Northern Ireland will show us what it means. So lastly then, defeating evil with good. Not fighting, not fleeing, but seeking a third way. What we do in situations where someone has done us harm in a meeting, in a Zoom call, in our neighbor, whoever it is, and there's an opportunity to get back, maybe you also should not trust your instinctive reaction, but step back and think, is there a third way here? Not fight, not flight, but something else. Counterintuitive. Actively drawing attention and saying, I will not strike you, but I will not shut up either. Done well, it can have a huge and disproportionate effect. Done well, it can break cycles of bitterness, cycles of unforgiveness. And so let's just, uh, lastly then, these words from Paul. I'll say them in, uh, in the form of a prayer. Let's, let's prayerfully read these words. So Paul writes at the end of Romans 12 on the same theme. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, he said, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen.